What if all you needed to get better in every way was available at the touch of a hand or the sound of a voice or even a vibration? Let's talk about how that happens, who can do it, and where to find them. I'm John Webster, and this is The Hesitant Healer. Greetings and welcome to The Hesitant Healer. I'm John Webster here with Lisa Kay. Hey, how's everybody doing? Uh, you don't have to answer that. Hey, um, I thought today we'd talk more about me because, again, that is my favorite subject. Um, we're going to talk a little bit today about alcoholism. Now, uh, because this is an all-inclusive thing on this podcast, I, I really want to add addiction or uh, drug addiction, alcoholism, just uh, substance abuse kind of stuff. But uh, it's remiss. I would be remiss about talking of this subject unless I told you all about me and my experience with it. So, here we go. I, uh, I'm John and I'm an alcoholic. This goes back about 29 years because I just celebrated 29 years of sobriety in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Congratulations. <clears throat> Gosh, thanks. Um, I have to think carefully about how I do this because I have lots of stories, but the lots of stories I have involve other members of AA or involve uh, people who might be sponsors or involve uh, somebody else's story, and that's where I have to draw the line and be real careful, right? I don't care. I have a lot of... Uh, Opinions about this, a lot of opinions about the current state of affairs of that program, a, a, a lot of opinions about how I behave and what I do and what I say. I, I don't get to do that for other people. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread lightly and there's going to be some gaps in the story because there's stories I can't tell because I haven't gotten permission from other people. For instance, I don't have a sponsor. I have a guy I talk to. Those are his words, right? And uh, we will not mention his name for the purposes of this podcast and forevermore. He's going to be Racer X. Because um, I think that's pretty funny, and he probably won't. Uh, we'll get to Racer X in a little bit. So, I did not grow up with alcoholism in my immediate family, uh, although it is certainly permeated throughout my family uh, immediately was not a problem, nor did I have a drinking issue when I was growing up. In fact, I was one of those anti-drinking people when they were drinking in high school and partying. I was not because I was an athlete, you know. So, uh, interestingly enough, though, my first big drunk was uh, at a high school party, and uh, I remember that uh, it was at Amy Meinsinger's house. I think she'll be okay with me using her name. And uh, there was a girl involved. I know I was flirting with one. I think she was a little older. I drank a lot and I mixed a lot and I don't remember a lot. What I do remember is kind of passing out on a bed in a bedroom and there was a couple making out next to me, kind of, I vaguely. And I remember Amy waking me up saying, your mom's on the phone, sober up, sober up. And then I remember taking the phone call and saying I'd be home in a minute because my mom had gone to the airport and come back and uh, I wasn't there. And, uh, and Tim Chavez walked me up the driveway and home, yeah. And I threw up, right? I threw up and they cleaned it up for me. And I got home before my mom got home or she'd gone to the store and so I was already in bed. So 
so it was a perfect crime, right? I got drunk. I passed out. I threw up. I went to bed. I didn't get caught. No drinking problem there. It was a number of years before uh, I picked up or did anything crazy again, and those were the Army years. I joined the Army in 1982, two years after I graduated high school because I was going nowhere fast, and I needed something to do. And um, my father highly recommended the military, said go into the Air Force, so I went into the Army because that's the kind of guy I was. <clears throat> it became apparent very quickly that the social structure of the armed forces that I was in is predicated on the drinking of alcohol with the boys. And that if I did such things, I could move along swimmingly within the ranks of the military community because I was one of them. It was frowned upon if you were abstinent and you did not drink with them. It just looked weird. So me and my good buddy Rodney Rockwell, I call him Rocky or The Rock, we started drinking. We had some pretty heavy conversations about God and religion and decided to put those on the back burner. And we drank and partied and got crazy, and we were rewarded for it. That's the military-industrial uh, complex as it relates to me. So uh, I swore going in I would not become an alcoholic, and you know I think I was by the time I got out. I only did uh, my normal tour three years. And uh, I did a year of uh, National Guard here in California, which was kind of a joke, and then I was done. But by that time, drinking had become part of my day-to-day. -day. Uh, there was a lot of moving around. So, wait, uh, I have a question. Okay. So, when you say drinking had been part of my day-to-day, -day, does that mean that every day you were getting drunk, or that every day you had to have a drink? Or you know, you know, that's a good question. Here's what I tell people. I was not a daily drinker. I was a weekend drinker. I was just an asshole in between drinks. Uh, and it took a while to develop that, but that's who I was by the time I quit. I... Uh, all my friends were in college. I went and visited a lot of them. I ended up uh, down in San Diego State with some friends on a party weekend. They liked me so much they invited me back. I packed all my crap up for my parents' house because living at home was not fun after I'd been in the military. And uh, I went down to San Diego, and uh, I partied hard down there. That was almost every day. Uh, I discovered cooking down there, too, and I discovered I was really good at cooking down there, too. And uh, and there was a group of people at a, a no longer uh, practicing restaurant called The Magic Pan in La Jolla. And, fuck, uh, those people could party and we could drink and we had a good time. One of the best restaurant times ever. Anyway, got done with that in that time frame, and that was, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half, Uh I was drinking to blackout status pretty much every time. And I started noticing that if we went to party, you, Lisa, would have your first drink. Mm -hmm. And by the time you finish that first drink, I'd be on number four or five. Ooh. I drank for effect. And I drank to get what I was looking for. And I drank to obliviate uh, whatever was going on in my head at the time. And I remember thinking, I had a, a girlfriend who eventually became my wife. I had a couple girlfriends who I'd met in the Army who'd come down. They had all kind of mentioned concern for my drinking. So I thought, well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll quit. So I did a thing where I went to the VA. 
down there and I remember this guy, very gruff looking guy. We sat in a tiny little office and he started telling me, well, you come in for 30 days and you do this and it's an inpatient program, which I did not know what that meant. And he explained it to me and I went, well, what does inpatient mean? He says, you're locked in for 30 days. I'm like, how am I supposed to go to work? And he like came across the desk with his gruff voice and slammed his fist on the table and said, do you want to get off the booze or not? And I, wow. I looked at him and I went, no, no, I don't. And I walked out because fuck that. That that seemed a little extreme. So shortly thereafter, I left and came back up to higher Southern California, closer to home and moved in with one of those girls and, and uh, lots of drinking, lots of screwing around, lots of girlfriends, kind of a primary relationship too. And uh, eventually she got pregnant and we got married and that was my first marriage. I had discovered cooking by then. And so I was working in a, uh, in a French restaurant and I was flirting with going to the culinary Institute of America, but couldn't make it work. And, uh, and then I got into a national apprentice program where I was going to be a nationally accredited chef if I finished uh, by the time I was all done with that, I was the first and only graduating apprentice chef for the American Culinary Federation in the Inland Empire. And uh, by now, I'd worked on a ton of restaurants and uh, hotels and had well been on my way into the world of, of higher level cooking all the way up into the Culinary Olympics, which I, I didn't get on that team, but I worked with those people. So um, drinking was on and off. The behavior was abhorrent. For instance, I tell people when I'm speaking in public groups that my girlfriend had a problem with my wife and my wife had a problem with my girlfriend. I, I they did not like each other much. And well, I wait, oh. most wives wouldn't like your You know, it turns out that. I learned that then I did. Um I'd become a, an ice carver, an international ice carver. I talked uh I talked my ice carving association team into letting my girlfriend accompany me all the way up to Alaska for an international ice carving competition because I didn't think that was an issue. Uh, it turns out that's where my last drink was, was in Fairbanks, Alaska. And uh, on the uh, on the form of a body shot off of this lovely woman. And uh, that's where my last drink was. And then when I came back, uh, as happens, hopefully with most alcoholics, everything came crashing down. I got caught doing everything, everything stopped working, sarcasm didn't work, nothing worked. And uh, a friend of mine, I have to keep this story very brief, a friend of mine that had been a drinking buddy, I, I helped through a series of strange coincidental events, I helped save her life because she was on her way out and I got to watch her get better. And in my head, I think I got sober right after her. And the reality was it, she has two more years than I do. So I watched her for two years get better. And I asked her all the time, how'd you do this? And she said, you know, you should go to meetings. You should get a therapist. You should do this, this, and this. And uh, the worse I got, the more willing I became. And so I launched myself into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started doing some of the things they suggested and I started getting better very slowly. The drinking part did go away. The behavior part took years. It took time. It took day-to-day -to -day working on a strategy of day-to-day -day living where I could 
make life work for me. Can I get some clarification? Get as much as you need, because the viewers, the listeners, the listeners, you know, I heard this on a podcast this weekend. I want to, I want to call y'all listeners. You know, listener, Lisa has a question. <laughs> it does sound kind of cool. I like that. So, is that a typical experience? People stop drinking through AA, perhaps, but they're still not all the way well. Well, uh, if hang on. What I didn't say in any of that was I quit drinking twice for a year and a half over that period of time that I just talked about. Stone cold quit and then picked up, I don't know, two ounces of wine, a half a beer, and within months was drinking full time again. Mm. So that's pretty typical. Everybody's got a little bit different story of how they got in here. Some people were daily drinkers. Some people were blackout drinkers. I was a weekend drinker. Uh, I know I was an asshole because a lot of people told me. Um and and so for me it was the behavior but alcohol exacerbated the behavior and so the first thing you got to do is quit drinking right but in the the 12 steps that everybody is familiar with in the 12 steps admission inventory confession restitution prayer and service those are the 12 steps in six right and they were stretched out to 12 steps so admitting I had a problem was the biggest deal, right? And and in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, the third step has to do with with getting in touch with a higher power or God or whatever you want, right? Whatever you want to call it. There are other programs out there that that they don't like the God part. They want to be agnostic. I mean, Alcoholics Anonymous does uh, address that. It really comes down to, do do you want to get better or not? And if you do want to get better, are you willing to listen to somebody other than your egotistical self to try and do that? Uh, you know, there's some celebrities out there that are, are uh, Nikki Glazer's one of them, that there's a book out. We need to find that book. Okay. Um, and I will put it in the in the notes that she credits with that, right? At 29 years... I am no longer the person I was in the time frame of which I am speaking, right? And that's a whole nother long, long story. But I will tell you along the way, especially in the searching for God part, whether you want to call it coincidence or life or uh, spooky or whatever, that there were some stories that, that led me to believe that if you try, you can get better, right? Can I ask another question? Sure, you can ask. I want you to ask as many questions as you can. Okay. So, you are talking about um, in AA, they ask you to find the God of your understanding. Did you have a religious background before you went to AA? Well, Lisa Kay, that's a great question. I am a recovering Catholic. <laughs> I... Uh, I grew up Catholic. In fact, my freshman year of high school, I went to a seminary. I was I was actually at one point in a place that was going to lead me down a path of being a priest. Uh, spoiler alert, that lasted that year and that was it. Um, but it gave me a good background and foundational belief system of Catholicism to which I could speak on to this day. Uh, by the time I got to where I was at, there were... There were some differences, but I was still basically Catholic. And as I, as I grasped 
for sobriety, like a, a dying man looking for a life raft, I, I did latch on to the religion that I knew. And that was the God of my mother, which I call it today. And in the God of my mother, I found that it, it I didn't really believe that stuff. It wasn't working for me. I had to find a God. When they say a God of your understanding, this has to be a God that you understand will save your fucking life and keep you from drinking one day at a time for the rest of your life. If you don't find that God, if you don't find that higher power, if you don't get to the point where you believe in something greater than yourself, you're going to die. That's, that's AA in a nutshell. So if you're not that fucked up, if you if you don't drink that much, if you're not to the point where you're willing to try an, an entirely different set of rules and laws to live by so that you can be better and get better, then it's probably not going to work, right? In the the one of my favorite movies called uh uh Gross Point Blank with John uh Cusack. Uh there's a part in there where they talk about Shakabuko. Watch the movie. It's great. Shakabuko. Um, you need that if you're going to get better. Because what you have been doing, if it's not working anymore, you got to do something else, right? If you do what you always did, you get what you always got, right? So, in the 29 years, my God has changed a lot and several times. There was one point a couple years in where I was Lieutenant Dan in the crow's nest of Forrest Gump, <laughs> right? I'm screaming and cussing and fuck you in, and, and I'm going to the beach once a week. Just literally, I'm the crazy guy on the beach screaming at the waves because God's not coming through. That was the God of my understanding. That's all I knew, right? Getting angry at God's okay. Questioning God's okay, right? And I, I learned to do that until it, it worked for me. Uh, I also have an individual that, that likes to speak of God as uh, people, uh, information, and events. People, information, and events. And and God speaks to us through people, information, and events, right? Some days it's God speaks to us through burning bushes. Some days it's it's a TV commercial, right? If you believe and you're open to it, it, it comes, Right? That's kind of how this thing works. Yes or no? You're nodding your head. Uh, well, I have a, also have a religious training background. What? I know. I, uh, I went to college. Uh, I was going to become a pastor. So, um, I, have a, I have a lot of uh, Bible knowledge. Uh, I'm not sure how far it's gotten me in life, but uh, I have it. So, burning bush moments... For the most part, it's a story about Moses wandering out in the the desert, and he's hoping to hear from God, and a bush um, suddenly is on fire. And out of the bush comes God's voice, talking to Moses. So, I think a lot of times in life in general, and from the addicts I've known, they are uh, hoping, wanting for that burning bush experience. I want God to say, hey, John, you really need to stop drinking. But um, in reality, that that is not how that happens. Well, Lisa Kay, it's funny you say that. Okay. I have a lot of stories that are burning, burning bush stories. Early on, uh, I was going to therapy. I was a couple years sober. I was talking with my regular guy who used to drive me around and not talk at all sometimes. 
and there was a meeting uh, in a city local here nearby that was literally, it was so smoke-filled, you could not see your hands in front of your face. So, we usually never went in. We just drove by, right? At the time, I was in therapy, and I was uh, a little crazy, and I had been prescribed uh, Prozac. And in the rooms back then, taking any kind of drug was taboo, and it was down-talked about. And... um I had a, a pretty prominent member in the in the arena at that time say, if it's prescribed, take it as prescribed and shut up. So I didn't tell anybody, right? But at least I got confirmation that it was okay to take it, right? Because you can get pretty screwed up thinking, well, if I take this antipsychotic drug, I, I'm not going to be sober. If a doctor prescribes it and you take it as prescribed, it's okay, don't fuck it up. Make sure you have somebody watching you and taking care of you that way. Opiates are the same way, man. I know a lot of alcoholics that opiates have kicked them out the doors because it kind of started sneaking two or three in and didn't tell anybody, right? So I was on Prozac. I was keeping it quiet. I wasn't telling anybody. And it was, uh, it was a pretty taboo subject. And we're driving by this smoke-filled room. And all of a sudden, Racer X pulls the car over, says, uh-oh, pulls the car over and parks and gets out before I can even say what the fuck. So I meander out and he's face to face with this guy who's got his hands in his pocket and he's got his head down and he's just talking to him. And I just kind of walk up slowly and I hear Racer X say, John's on Prozac. And I'm like, Jesus, Racer X, what the fuck? This is a super secret thing, right? And the guy says, what, you are? And I'm like, yeah. And in my head, I see Racer X kind of back up, and it became me and this guy one-on-one. So I started telling the story of uh, me on Prozac, how I got therapy, how I got the Prozac, what it had done for me, how it had kind of cleared up the fog. I didn't know I was depressed when I got sober. I had no idea. And I took Prozac 10, 20, 30, 40 milligrams for almost six, seven months to get up to 40 milligrams, where one day I woke up off the couch and went, oh, holy shit, where have I been for the last three years, right? I mean, I, I, I didn't know until I knew. So I tell this guy this story. And this guy, he's like sniffly, and he's like, really? And he goes, are you serious? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes, uh, his story was he'd been in, he'd gone to county jail. He'd been prescribed some meds, some psych meds, and he'd gone to county jail, and they didn't give him his psych meds, so he'd been off his psych meds, and um, and then he finally found somebody that gave him some Prozac, and he was on the Prozac, and he's getting feedback from people who were like, uh, "You ought not to be taking those drugs," and he was all confused. And he goes, and I've been locked in my house for weeks, and I've been praying and praying. He goes, and I finally told God. Uh, I need, I'm going to kill myself. I can't do this. And I'll give you one more fucking chance. He goes, so I came to this meeting tonight, and if I didn't get an answer from God, I was going to kill myself. And he pulls a fucking gun out of his pocket. Oh and I went, I, I didn't know what to say. He goes, he hugs me. Like, thank you so much. Thank you so much. I never saw this guy again. I was in tears. I got chills. I get back in the car. Racer X is like, well, so that happened. I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck I, uh, how, right? What, when, how many things had to happen 
for us to be driving there that night with me and that guy and Racer X knowing that guy and for that story to happen. And I'm like, that was my first, that was my first story of maybe there's a thing that's bigger than me in this world that makes things happen. We We can call that coincidence if we want. Well, a miracle. Wait, there's more. Well, okay, I was just going to say... Go ahead. The definition of a miracle... Yes? ...is when something happens that normally wouldn't happen or normally shouldn't happen. So, by definition, that whole thing, all of the pieces that had to fall together for you to be at that spot and for him to be at that, that's a miracle. Nice. Speaking of definitions, let's talk about the definition of alcohol as prescribed in AA, which is an obsession of the mind... Coupled with an allergy of the body, right? So an obsession is a thought that I can't let go of. And an allergy is a substance taken in similar amounts to another person has little or no effect at all. But if I drink alcohol, I start thinking about drinking alcohol and I need more. And if if you drink alcohol, you have one or two glasses and, and you go to bed. Like... I was just, did, did we say, did we already say by the time I had one, you had? Yes. You yeah, we said, said that. that. All right. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that was constant. I would catch myself in, in groups of people having my fifth one and they're still sucking on the first one they had. And I'm like, I don't understand. Right. My, my girlfriend slash soon to be my wife. I, I distinctly remember when, when I moved back from San Diego, she had uh, one of those big old tumblers filled with uh, Malibu rum and Coke. Yum. <laughs> and, uh, and, she, and I wasn't drinking. That was one of my times I wasn't drinking. And I watched her sip on that thing <laughs> all day. And I'm like, drink the fucking thing already, right? I don't, I don't get you people that sip, right? A glass of wine is a, a bottle that fits in a giant plastic tumbler from Angel Stadium, right? That, that's, <laughs> that's the one the doctor asked. I have a glass of wine a day, right? So uh, I'll give you another one, folks. Now listen, before I before I tell you the story, this is my story as I remember it in my head. All the facts are true to the best of my knowledge, okay? But it was a pivotal, pivotal time in my sobriety where I got to the point where I believed that there was a spiritual entity looking out for me specifically, okay? Uh, about five years sober, I said I didn't get better immediately, right? I'm not drinking, but I'm crazy, and I'm still screwing around on my wife. I got three kids at this point, and I'm screwing around on my wife a lot. And I had left her because I just couldn't stay there anymore. So she used to go on vacation without me because I had to work as a chef. I worked 12-hour days and whatnot. She went on vacation one time. I was talking to one of these girls I was kind of having sex with, and she says, why don't you just leave her? You can come stay here. She was married. Um, and I said, okay. And she came and picked me up. I, you know, I just remember looking around the house with the windows closed and the piles of, of crap on the floor and the clothes were unwashed and the house was dirty. And I just kind of had a, a, a moment of clarity where I realized this is, this is not living. I just couldn't do this anymore. And that's when she called and said, leave. And I said, okay. So I left my wife and kids while they were on vacation. Right, and they were little. I I broke their hearts, 
So I go live with this girl. She had a girlfriend. Basically, as time... And the internet was new, right? The internet was was new. So uh, I had had a porn addiction when I was in the army that I quit because I left Germany and came to America, and it's not the same here. That's all I'm going to say about that. But as the internet being new, there were things on the internet that you could pull up at any time, and this person... Uh, introduced me to the new world of internet porn, right? And I went, 10 years later, this is 10 years later, I went right back into it. So I'm I'm not only addicted to alcohol and not drinking, I'm now addicted to this other thing, and it's, it's, it's got me all excited. And uh, there were five things that I was addicted to besides alcohol. There was alcohol, power, control, sugar, and sex. Any one of those things could light me off and... and and uh, in in order or in conjunction with each other or one at a time, but they 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 were my vices. So in very short order, I I started sleeping with that lady, and then I, I her friend, and I think there was another side chick. And every once in a while, I'd go home and and try and get with the wife too. I was just a I was just a pig, honestly. I was a pig, having the time of my life, not thinking there were any consequences. I had quit a $32,000 a year job as a sous chef with a catering company to go work a $9.20 an hour uh, job at a uh, prominent restaurant with a prominent chef, right? I wanted to work for Wolfgang Puck, and he had opened a cafe local, and I, I didn't hear about it till late, so I went and signed up as a line cook, right? Just to work under that name. Uh, not the brightest of moves. Uh, I had moved out of the house. I was with this person. I was banging all these people. I was, I was, uh, I was an idiot, right? So I did that for a while. That was a year where uh, uh, a lot of people got sick that uh, that winter, and I ended up kind of running that restaurant because I could uh, with no reward, right? The sous chef got sick. I took his job. The 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 chef got sick. I, I did a little bit of his stuff. The, uh, the, uh, kitchen manager got sick. I, I did her job. Right. I mean, I was, I was a great restaurant guy and, uh, and I was doing a lot of stuff that I shouldn't have been doing at nine twenty an hour, but I was trying to get in graces with people. And I was just, I was just moving and banging on all fours and I was kicking ass. And, uh, really I was in a toboggan with no brakes on an ice slide mm-hmm. with a brick wall at the end. And I didn't know it. And I'm telling this story lightly. Let me tell you, it was way worse than what I'm saying. But one of the things I used to do before I drank again was was smoke clove cigarettes. And I I mm. went outside to smoke a clove, which tells me, uh, even though I don't remember thinking I wanted to drink, if I was smoking cloves, I was probably pretty close, right? Uh, I remember being out on this back dock and uh, taking a puff, and a thought invaded my thoughts like I've never had before or since with a voice that said, you should probably kill yourself. And I remember thinking, okay. And when I made that decision, everything washed away from me like all my sins had been forgiven and I was wiped clean and it was a peace. Honestly, I don't know that I've ever known since. And I remember thinking, dual, dual thoughts here, Oh my God, no wonder, right? If this is what suicide's like, I'm in. This makes sense. Now, I didn't know uh, how that was going to happen, but I knew by the end of the night I was going to be dead. 
somehow, some way, because I was I had made the decision. I also knew weird spiritual sidebar that I wouldn't be pulling that trigger. That something else would do it. But once I made the decision, I gave that spiritual realm permission to do so. If that makes sense. It was like nine twenty three in the evening. Shortly after that whole thing transpired, somebody came out and said, you got a phone call. Now, we're not allowed to get phone calls at this restaurant ever. You don't get personal phone calls. It was a big deal. I'm like, who the fuck? She goes, they're insistent. I'm like, ah. So, I get on the phone and it's the, the woman I live with who lived with her husband, she says, you need to come home now. I'm like, why? She goes, I can't tell you. You need to come home now. It's an emergency. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. And I hang up and I'm like, oh shit, he knows, right? Mm -hmm. This This is it. So I gracefully get out of work. I get in my car. I drive all the way to this place. I walk in ready for a fight and they're sitting on the couch together. I'm like, fuck, here we go. And I'm like, what? And she goes, Never mind, it worked itself out. I'm like, what? She goes, that. I said, I, I fucking left work. What the hell? No, it, we're good. Don't worry about it. And the phone rings. And I'm standing in the kitchen right by the phone. I pick the phone up. And it's the wife who I'm separated from, who hates my guts. And by the way, knows this person I'm living with. And hate is not a strong enough word for what she felt towards her. And I'm like, and I was, I was just drippy with fuck yous, right? I'm like, what do you want? She goes, you need to come home. I'm like, why? She goes, I need you to come home now. She goes, this is not an argumentative fact. You need to get here now. Okay, right? I already done it once tonight. I guess I'll do it again. So I hang up. What that bitch want? I gotta go. I gotta go to the house, right? So I, uh, I get in the car and I drive another twenty minutes and I, I get in and she's sitting on the couch, kind of ghost white, right? Uh, in a nightgown, and I'm like, what? And she goes, I, I, I can't explain this. I need you to go look at your kids. I thought she killed them. Right? I thought she had done something to the children. That's how fucked up I thought she was. But she says, go look at your children. And they were, I don't know, four, five, six at the time. Uh, 46 minutes, 52 minutes, somewhere like that. After I had made the decision to kill myself, I am standing in front of my three children watching, watching them sleep. And it hit me, and I got it, and I, I, I crumbled because I had made the decision to end my life that night, and somehow, some way, through a strange series of several events, I'm standing in front of my kids like 46 fucking minutes later, and I come reeling out of that room, and I go sit in the couch across from her, and I'm like, what made you do that? She says, what's going on? I said, I'm not fucking telling you what's going on. What made you do that? She goes, you need to tell me what's going on. I said, no, I don't. Why did you call me? She goes, you're going to think I'm crazy. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) you don't know what this night's been like. I'm like, what? She goes, about 46 minutes ago, I was watching Wheel of Fortune, and, and this thought came into my head. That was so powerful. She goes, it blocked out the TV and it just said, call him and make him come home. Wow. Wow is right. Right? I'm like, 
I'm in tears. I mean, I'm bubbling. Whatever. And she says, there's more. I'm like, okay, whatever. She goes, you need to spend the night. We're not having sex or nothing, but just just come to bed and spend the night. Uh, Okay. Right? I I just, by that point, I'm following direction. I I went and laid down and we went to sleep and I woke up the next morning and that whole other thing was just gone. And uh, listen, those are two. Those are two of the big ones, but I have several stories like that where I cannot look at you and tell you there's no God because it's not been my story, right? Now, I, I can't tell you I don't believe in the Hollywood version or, or the Catholic church version or whatever most people go to church for, but don't tell me there's not something out there that doesn't look out for me when I ask or even when I don't want to and that, and, and that doesn't work out in a way in which makes my life better because that has not been my experience. And I know there's people out there where there's an absence of that and, and there's a hopelessness and, and some people try and bring that up and it doesn't happen. It, it, that has just not been my experience. And I, I, even though I don't practice Alcoholics Anonymous the way that I did when I first started, and I don't latch onto it like I'm a, a dying man looking for a life vest anymore. I, If you were to ask me at 3 o'clock in the morning for some help, I would not hesitate to stop sleeping and get up and go to wherever you were to help you and to show you the nearest room and to get you a sponsor and to teach you the books and the steps, which I understand. Right? Now, having said all that, um, I think current changes in society. Uh, I think a program that was put together in the 30s does not necessarily translate to our current sociological viewpoints on quote unquote alcoholism. Right? I think addiction has become more prevalent than alcoholism. I don't think alcohol is as prevalent and as tabooish as it was in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. I don't think a lot of people are calling in drunk anymore, right? I think there are better drugs. I think there are better things to be addicted to. And and the principles don't always transpire with other things besides alcohol. And that is my personal opinion today, not one that the general world prescribes to, right? It's a thing I, I struggle with and I have conversations with uh, people who know and who have similar experiences, right? It's a, it's an evolving piece of information for me. But currently there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of programs out there, right? There is a, a, a there's a line in the big book of uh, what there's is the a big l- book? There's a line in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is kind of the, the Alcoholics Anonymous Bible. It's, it's a thing that you're going to get if you ever step into a meeting. Even if you don't go to a meeting, get it. If you're struggling with this, it kind of talks about uh, how we think, what we do, how we get better, right? It's, it's, the, uh, it's the workbook for alcoholics. And in there, it talks about how uh, science hasn't found a way to fix alcoholism yet, but it, it might do so someday, right? I am of the belief that we're kind of there. You may, not, you may have to look for it, but there are some things out there that, that can help 
with alcoholism and with the neurological nuances of alcoholism and addiction. And and they're being worked on in the mainstream therapy and they're being worked on in the fringe therapy, but there's some things out there that help a lot, including therapy, uh, with alcoholism if you happen to be somebody who has it. Uh, there is a national hotline. There is a local hotline. You can't really throw a stick without bumping into somebody who has this or has been to a meeting. If you just ask around, you can find help. If you're not sure, ask. Right? Somebody once told me in a meeting in a basement in Canada, if you go to a small town and ask a priest, the police chief, or the librarian, you will find a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous because we're everywhere, right? And and all willing to help no matter what, yeah? So, uh, it took a while, but I got better. I will say that I have been a uh, staunch proponent and member and talker to Racer X for 39 years. We still talk a lot. Um and he's a guy who saved my life, and he's a guy who's in my life, and he's a guy who has made a difference to me and countless others, and that's kind of how it should be, right? So there's there's AA. There is also NA if you're addicted to narcotics. There is SA if you're addicted to sex. There is Al-Anon if you are addicted to somebody who is an alcoholic. There are lots of anonymous meetings and different programs for people who have addictions to other substances, feel free to use those. They all work, right? And there are some others that are not 12-step oriented. There are some others that are not God-oriented. There are some others that help you if you're willing to get out and change your thoughts and change your mind and understand what's what are the causes and conditions of you to want to numb out so bad that you're no longer a productive member of society. So don't hesitate to use those when they become available or, uh, you know, I mean, they are available. Thoughts, Lisa Kay? I don't know that I have a lot of thoughts. Uh, thankful that you made that journey. Um, I would not be here today and do what I do if I had not do that. Let me leave you with this, all right? This is almost day one with Racer X, Right. He says, one of the things you want to do by reading this book, this is the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, is that you want to work on these six areas of your life, mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, and sexually. And the last two are usually in order, right? But they're also good checkpoints of how you're doing today, right? If I want to check and see how my life is, I want to look at my mental capacity. I want to see how I'm doing physically. How's my spirituality doing, right? How's my emotions? How are my emotions? What are, what are my finances like? How's my sex life, right? All of those things kind of make up a human being in our day-to-day -day and, and should balance us. These are the six balances of life. They balance us. So that we can use them as checkpoints to see how we're doing, right? When I was a chef and I was working 12, 14, 18 hours a day, um, I certainly didn't have time for any physical stuff, right? Because I was locked into work. And mentally, I was locked into work. So those, those two were not even with uh, my spirituality and my emotional, right? My finances were great, but I wasn't getting a lot of sex either. You know, I mean, you can always tell by backing that up to where you're at.
And then he gave me four things that you should try and do every day, right? These are the four, four things that you should try and do uh, for a balanced life. And that's work, play, quiet, and pray, right? It's a meditation of sorts, right? Uh, I have since been to yoga teacher training. I'm a, I'm a trained yoga professional, if there is such a thing. And, and I know that uh, people who do have a yoga practice that do it on a daily basis, they, they kind of hit all these marks. If you learn about yoga, the true meaning of yoga, the eight limbs of yoga, you will find that they mirror all the things I've talked about. And if you were to look at the, the, uh, the principles of Alcoholics Anonymous, the eight limbs of yoga kind of match that, right? Who knew that thousands and thousands of years ago, we'd kind of figured this thing out. Right, so in the realm of healing, uh, alcoholism, drug addiction, addiction in general are healable. You're going to need some help to do it. I don't know anybody that has gotten better all by themselves. We need other people. We need other humans. We need to find that person that has been there and done that. Right? Have you ever heard the old story about that guy walking down the road, Damascus or whatever, and he falls into a hole and he gets stuck and the preacher comes by, he says, Father, can you help me? And he says, I can't, son, but I'll pray for you. And he keeps walking. And then he goes a little farther and a uh, guy walks by, he says, I'm, I'm uh, on the city council. What can I do for you? He says, help me get out of here. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll make a lot to get this pothole filled, right? <laughs> and, then, and then another guy comes by and he says, I, I don't know what to do for you, but you know, maybe I'll, I'll go tell somebody. And then a guy comes by and he says, can you help me? And the guy jumps in the hole. And he goes, what are you doing? I'm stuck down here. Why did you jump in the hole? And the guy says, I've been here before and I know how to get out. Come on, I'll show you, right? Mm -hmm. That's been my experience about getting better, right? Somebody knows how to do it. They're willing to show you how to do it. And you're willing to follow them and do what they did and learn how to do it yourself. And then paying it forward becomes an absolute, right? It is absolutely essential to give back whether it's through community or family or service to a single individual. I'm not big on changing the world with lots of governance. I like to say that I'm going to change the world one person at a time, right? I, I, I'm not prejudiced against any race, creed, religion, any of that stuff. I hate all stupid people equally, <laughs> right? Um, but if you're, if you're willing to ask for help, I, I have to. It was done for me, therefore I do for you. That's the way this thing works, right? And it's made me a better person because of it. Perhaps that is the message I want to share today, right? Well, I got better and now I need to share it with other people so that they can get better and I can continue to stay better. Yeah? Anything, Lisa? So what would you say to someone who is ready to say, I think alcohol has become a problem in my life. I think narcotics have become a problem in my life. I think uh, gambling or sex has become a problem in my life. What would you say to them? Uh, tell me about the sex in depth. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Stop. That was too, that was too easy. Um, well, I think those are three different questions. Okay. Uh, it would be, uh, if they're asking me specifically, I, I would start asking a lot of questions. And what are you willing to do to get better? Right? If it's alcohol, I'll take you to a meeting. I'll give you a book. I got three of them here. Right? Do you need to sit out? Is it a problem right now this minute? Do we need to talk about that? 
right? How is it affecting your life? I've talked to several people who they think they're, they're at that part where they think they're drinking too much, but they're not willing to do anything about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the greatest speakers I ever heard said alcoholism comes in three distinct phases. The first phase is fun. If I'm drinking and I'm having fun, there's nothing you can tell me that's going to change that at all. Phase two is fun plus problems. I'm still having fun. I'm drinking and have a blast party and woo But, you know, life is throwing some curveballs at me and there's some, some parts of my life that are not okay. My boss is an ass. My wife is a bitch. There's, there's all kinds of stuff that's not working. They're seemingly unrelated to alcohol. I'm okay. I'm doing all right. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to curb it down a little bit. Very little you can do with this person either. And there's a majority of people out there that are like that, right? They think they might have a problem, but they're not willing to do anything. Phase three is just problems. And by the time you get to this point, it's got you. If your life is going downhill and you can't stop and you find over time that you keep reaching for that as the fix and you don't know how not to do it and it invades every area of your life, then you've got a problem. And it's at that point that if you ask for help, you become willing to do different things to change what you're doing. Because if you're not willing to change, I can't help you. We talked about you in, in what, episode two, episode three, episode right? Two, the yeah. first time you were in the middle of that, mm-hmm. you weren't willing to change. And there was nothing I could do. I, there may be other ways, but my way is I can't help you if you're not willing to do what I think is the right thing, right? You have to become dependent on another person for a minute and and at least try something different, right? Uh, So really the question would be, I think I'm drinking too much. Can you help me? I'm willing to do whatever it takes. Now I'm all in and I'll do whatever it takes at great peril to me in my life just to help you get better because it was done for me. Yeah, does that make sense? It does, thank you. All right, folks, I think that's all we have time for today. Again, uh, please continue to listen and tell friends and hop on the old internet with the Facebook page and ask questions if you want. And uh, Lisa's got her hand up. Every Thursday, you'll get a new episode. So look for us on Thursdays. Thursdays are the magical days that you get to hear what we have to say. Um, I think that's it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for listening. And I, I do invite feedback. Please give us a give us a text or a call or a Facebook page. And uh, have a wonderful day. Bye. Bye. Bye.